0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and today we are joined by Tressie McMillan Cottom. Tressie is the author of Lower Ed, The Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges in the New Economy, published by the New Press. Tressie, welcome.
1: Thank you, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So I wonder before we we home in specifically on the book itself. I wonder if you might uh, talk a little bit about your own professional background and uh, the kinds of questions that interest and animate you, maybe as a way to talking about how you arrived at this particular project.
1: Absolutely. So um, I am a sociologist by training, um, but I like to say that my experience of thinking about you know sort of those broad sociological questions, right? So. Um, what is that point of contact and tension between actor and structure? Mm -hmm. I like, I think a lot of that comes as much from, uh, who I am as it does from how I have been trained. Um, I tell my students often that I think that, um, any person who has experienced sort of group identity in a way that shapes their day-to-day life experiences in the way that a minority um, person would in the U.S. has a special sort of lens into thinking about things like structure and agency. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that is particularly true of me. So uh, I am a North Carolina Southern by birth and by culture and by choice. I like to tell folks. (laughs) Uh, And I come to my questions of understanding, uh, of thinking about what inequality means today, right? So, as sociologists, we're very animated by the broad questions of stratification and inequality. I'm very narrowly sort of um, uh, focused on and most excited about those questions that relate to how is inequality happening now? Right. And again, a lot of that coming out of my personal experience of thinking about how the new economy certainly shaped my own biography um, as a somewhat non-traditional student, but absolutely squarely in the great African-American migration story of, you know, um, middle class mobility, which I am. Um, But also thinking about how it shaped the lives of people around me um, and how a lot of that is in flux. But the underlying principles of how inequality happens and how people experience those seem to be remarkably stable. So because of that, I think about the conditions of the new economy, thus the subtitle of the book. And I've thought about it the last few years, um, specific specifically related to how it's shaping how we go to school and how we work. Mm-hmm. Right. And especially those handoffs between the two. So we have historically really understood how people go to college as being driven a lot by their expectations of how they will one day work. Well, when the new economy is changing how we work, I ask questions about how that changes how we go to school, right? So I sort of flipped um, uh, our understanding of uh, how higher education works. And instead of saying how higher education changes how you go into the economy, I think about how the economy changes how we go to school. Um, And so I ended up doing um, my uh, graduate study and my dissertation work on for-profit colleges, which I came to because I had personal experience with them. So not only am I African-American a woman, and by virtue of that, I uh, tend to have uh, close social distance to lots of people, uh, other African-Americans and women who uh, disproportionately go to for-profit colleges like the University of Phoenix. I have personal experience with that, but I also have personal experience working in them before I returned to graduate school to become a sociologist. So all of that informs sort of the questions that I ask. Um, You know, what does inequality look like today, and how is it changing some of our fundamental social institutions?
0: Mm-hmm. so um, so in the book you 're interested not just in describing and examining the functioning of those for-profit or non-traditional colleges, but also in explaining that particular timing of their rise. So I wonder if we could take each of those um, two things in turn. So, So what okay. are those institutions at the center of your analysis, the things that you'll often call non-traditional colleges? So what should we know mm-hmm. about them and who are the students who are most likely to be attending mm-hmm. them? And what should we know about them, too?
1: Absolutely. I think the most important thing to maybe know about for profit colleges, first of all, to kind of get out of the way sort of its precise definition, right? Mm-hmm. So um the most the most frequent joke, um, and if you could help me spread the word to anyone who may ever attend one of my talks and tell them that I've actually heard this joke before. But so I've got, <laughs> I'm doing my talk and I you know, and the very first thing you always get from some guy in the audience, and I'm sorry, it's almost always a guy, who says Well, aren't all colleges for profit these days? Ha, ha, ha. Yes, absolutely right. All schools participate in profit generating activities, but for profit colleges, what we're talking about specifically, are those who by virtue of their tax designation, their IRS designation, can extract profit from the school and distribute that profit to owners. That actually is quite different than how traditional not-for-profits both public and private have been allowed to operate by virtue of their tax status. But then what I'm talking about even more specifically than that is those types of schools have actually existed for a very long time. Secretarial schools, technical schools, Mm -hmm. et cetera. But something really particular happened um, by the mid-1990s up through, I would actually say through last year. We experienced a very different sort of um, moment with for-profit colleges. The first characteristic of that change is that they became financialized that means they were operating uh, in the market. Um, They were shareholder led mostly by shareholder organizations, a few private equity owned firms, but that everything about the sort of logics and the um, assumptions of the culture of finance was guiding how these schools operated and how they had grown. And well, that's actually pretty strange, right? We've Mm -hmm. never expanded higher education by going to the market before. We usually build community colleges, right? When the get a lot of people, or we build new public schools. So this was actually quite different. And that was specific to sort of this uh, mid-1990s or what uh, Kevin Kinzer and and others, including myself, called this Wall Street era of for-profit colleges. So to think about what that era means, um, uh, for me, was a way to understand this particular moment in time that all of us were sort of participating in, but didn't maybe always notice what was going on around us. Mm
0: -hmm. And so you, you described them as institutions that are organized to commodify social inequalities. Can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about sort of what you mean by that and how that actually functions in the real world?
1: Absolutely. So so one of my very first tensions was if these things have always existed, why pay so much attention to them now? Right. Yeah. And if they've always existed, then they're not that different, really, from higher education, as we've always understood it. Um, and I actually wrestled with that question a lot. Um one and wanting to be fair to my subject matter, but especially wanting to respect the many students uh, that I spoke to and sort of to respect their decisions and their experience of social mobility, which was to try to really understand this thing as fairly as possible. And what I came to was, yes, this idea that actually what makes, I think, this moment of higher education expansion in the financialized sector different um, is that it only works if we continue to reproduce or we continue to produce more people who want social mobility than we do opportunities for social mobility, right? Mm -hmm. And that is different. Traditional not-for-profit higher education, by virtue of the fact that it does not, they are not honor bound to produce profit every year, can sustain investing more in students than they get out of students right and so because of that it is in those institutions vested interest to produce more opportunities for upward mobility for those students for-profit colleges actually only become a sustainable business model if we continue to produce people who want higher education or who want social security, um, a secure labor um, arrangement, but don't have any other means to get it. And that actually makes them unique and specific. All right. For-profit colleges do not work if we have more equitable distribution of social opportunity. They only work if we remain unequal. hmm
0: so do you, do you see those institutions doing something to, to ensure that they continue to have a market?
1: Absolutely. Um, so at a couple of different levels. So at the first level is like most, you know, organizations uh, these days, they have a very strong lobby um, uh, that is promoting a set of social policies and also regulations Um that protect the idea of higher education as an individual good, right? So as long as they can reduce higher education to just a market relationship, they're standing on a particular set of principles, right? Um, that make it very difficult for people uh, to push back against or to critique uh, the quality of the, um, the opportunity that they provide. Um, so, you know, there's, that's all that. But, you know, everybody lobbies, right? But they do, they have a very robust lobby. Um, but also at sort of the more concrete level They are invested in enrolling students who won't be able to figure out the sort of prestige hierarchy of higher education um, any other way. Right. Mm -hmm. So that means selling students on enrolling in the school while walking a very fine line of not explaining to students how college works. Right And that is different, so mm-hmm. when you go to a, a traditional uh, not for profit school, um, sort of our legitimacy as an institution rests on us helping students to think critically, even about our own institution right for profit colleges actually um, uh, perpetuate sort of um, uh, the the sort of shrouded nature of how higher education isn 't equal and how uh, institutions do provide different types of opportunities. But they also promote that to the prospective students themselves, right? So uh, they do not encourage the students to think critically about their own educational choices um, and opportunities, because to do that would be to jeopardize their profit motive. Mm -hmm. And that is quite different. And so you see that show up in things like how the enrollment officers engage with prospective students when they call a for-profit college, right? That student calls, and they have a vague idea that they want to go to school. Well, if they did that at the local community college, granted, it might be difficult for them to get to a counselor, but once they do, that counselor will often say to them, here are some options for you at this school, but here are some other things outside of this school that you should consider, right? There's a program down the street that's offering this new thing, and you should think about that, or, you know, this could really save you some money if you do it this way at a for-profit school the enrollment officer's entire job is actually to not do those things to not give the student options right to narrow their options to something that only that for-profit college can provide right and so that's what that looks like on the day on the on the ground that's them saying things like well you don't know what you want to do with yourself that's fine. Let's just put you in this business program because business, everybody likes business. There'll always be jobs in business, right? You'll never go unemployed or for long if you just have a degree in business. Well, for the student who doesn't know that there's a difference between an MBA um, from Stanford and an associate's degree in um, office technology, and they just think all of that is sort of quote unquote business, right? the for-profit college is benefiting from never clarifying that distinction for that student. Right.
0: But I mean, it it feels like they're, it it seems to me that throughout the book, you've got a little bit of ambivalence in some ways about these institutions, because on the one Mm -hmm. hand, they are, um, I think it is fair to say for most students, giving them uh, what may well be an inferior product at a higher price mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. if they are leaving them with a product at all when all is said and done, if they wind up actually mm-hmm. graduating, getting the certificate or the degree. But on the other hand, they are in fact recognizing a basic reality, which is that education is, in fact, a mystery to a lot of people and that navigating the complex bureaucracy of that system of a local community college or the public institution that I work at can often be an awful, confounding, <laughs> infuriating, horrible experience. And if you are trying to manage what is already a complicated life, maybe you've got kids you're raising, you've got mm-hmm. a job or two or maybe three You can't do it. Right. So that the the for profit institution is, in fact, recognizing this better in some ways than maybe the institutions Mm -hmm. you and I work for.
1: Absolutely. So one of my tensions and the reason why I think that ambivalence comes through is me trying, again, so desperately to respect, um, the agency of the students who end up in for-profit colleges, but also with me trying very hard to do something my uh, graduate school advisor used to say, say to me, you know, Tracy you know, who's right or wrong is not a sociological question. Um, <laughs> and I would go, yeah, yeah, but it's a good moral ethical question. Right. But it is true that for that was me trying to focus on this is what for-profit colleges have done. Right. They have identified a social function and they absolutely fulfill that social function. They did not create the circumstances of the social function. That, that's the part where I wanted to diffuse responsibility and say, listen, even if we got rid of the University of Phoenix tomorrow, what the economy has produced and what our social policy has produced is a group of people who, by all accounts, even the most conservative estimates, there will be more of these people than there were last year or the year before, who need more training in the labor market, who need more job security and more income security. And the only thing we have offered them is, hey, go to college with none of the accompanying sort of um, socialization or support to discern what college would do for them, how to navigate college or a way to do that without going into significant debt. The social function then that these for-profit colleges feels, that is real. Right. Um, And for us to focus on getting rid of them, although I say let's regulate them into oblivion, actually won't get rid of the millions of people who go, as one student told me in the book when she got really frustrated with me. Well, Trusty, what the hell am I supposed to do? And I thought, well, yeah, she's right. What is she supposed to do? Right. She has followed all of the rules sort of laid out by our current social norms. There was no winning for that student, just like there's no winning for lots of people.
0: I mean, some of this is geographic, too, right, is that there are places in which there aren't, you know, state public institutions or local community colleges, and the Mm -hmm. only accessible institution of education or credentialization is the local for-profit in the mini-mall.
1: Mm -hmm. That's right. And that was actually really um, interesting for me to hear. So like I talked to some a group um, and particularly one student, sort of her peer group um, in uh, a sort of mid rural North Carolina community. And, you know, the local for profit college had just as much, if not more name recognition, Mm -hmm. sort of institutional trust and affiliation um, than the local community college and certainly more than. The local private elite residential college that was in the in the same area, right? Students grow up with that name. They grow up knowing people who have gone there, right? Um, they know people who have worked there, and the people who work there sort you know treat them well. Um, they talk to them and remember them. I mean, um, those things some of us might remember in pri- in public higher education, especially there was a time when we all valued those types of things. Yeah. Um, and especially at the geographic level. Absolutely. Um, you know, we're living in a time when we're paying su- suddenly a lot of attention to the sort of uh, geographic inequalities in our country and how much those intersect with uh, income and wealth inequalities. Um, and, yeah, there are huge swaths of this um, of this country where there is not any other practical, affordable credentialing opportunity. Yeah. Technology can't solve that. Probably only social policy and intense directed um, public investment can, but that's not the moment we're in. That's a political non-starter.
0: Right. Um, because it would be expensive and it would serve that's- a population that doesn't have any political power?
1: it. That's right. Nobody cares about the fact that there are a whole bunch of poor people or working class people um, in these sort of middle rings. You know, they're not quite totally rural, but they're not urban either. These middle rings throughout the country who, thanks to years of things like transportation policy, uh, job and economic policy yeah. racial policy um, and sort of the gendered racial type of uh, changes that have shaped the labor market have no other option. These people even if they do vote tend to be in disproportionately gerrymandered districts where their yeah. vote doesn't carry the same weight. They do not mm-hmm. have political representation to say to them to say to those in power um, we're worth this investment. Yeah they're they're literally trapped in those in a ring.
0: And um this is Stephen Pimper. I'm the host of the Public Policy Channel here on the New Books Network, and we are speaking with Tressie McMillan Cottom about her new book, *Lower Ed: The Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges in the New Economy*, uh, published by the New Press. Um, so, I mean, so, so, Tressie, you do not yourself make these kinds of of, of arguments uh, from this framework, but I'm, I'm sort of hearing you talk. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering whether. Um, There is sort of a a neo-Marxist structural argument to be made about what you're just describing and that, that, well, this is functional in a lot of ways, right? This is, in fact, serving um, some – we shouldn't be surprised by the fact that the political system is not responding. This is actually a way of dealing with a problem. We've got a population who we don't particularly give a damn about whether they get access to upward mobility and don't necessarily have a place for them if they get meaningful credentials, because we've got sort of labor problems across the board. And this is a means by which we we create the illusion of that upward mobility while while using them as an extractive resource and funneling that money off into another segment of the population we're more concerned with. What do you think about that kind of argument? That is actually
1: the argument that you just pointed out to me that I may not have made it well then. But yes, because that's absolutely the argument, Stephen, (laughs) that that is exactly what happened. Right. So this is how this is, you know, there's nothing surprising about the fact that this is how capital works. Right. Um, that what we do have, uh, the conditions of the new economy that have changed how we work has also changed how capital flows work. Um, and so that means that uh, extracting value from the public sector for private profit is pretty much about the only way for profit to be made at the type of scale yeah. with which financialized capital now operates. And the only way you're going to find those things are to find the, the pockets of the public sector. Sector that, where there's where there's still significant investment. As it turns out, we only have a couple of things left, right? Healthcare, which is why Medicare and Medicaid continue to come up as uh, highly politically contentious issues, and higher education, which is why broadly things like student debt has become um, this sort of public discussion. It's because those are really the only places left for capital seeking and um uh, the rentier class is sort of in investing to extract resources that it has to go through poor people there's nothing new about that right this is just a particular iteration of how that resource extraction now happens given that we have reduced the sort of size of the state in some of these ways to such a narrow pinpoint that there are only a couple places left to go yeah.
0: um so we've talked a lot, sort of about about the the, the macro, the, the the structural issues. I wonder if we can sort of flip around a little bit and maybe do a little bit more of the ethnography. Could you talk just a little bit, either as as um, through the prism of your own experience, uh, mm-hmm. working in two different, uh, very very different. Uh, for-profit mm. colleges or during your research. Talk about some of the, the, the people you met and uh, their stories and their own experience and how that might help listeners sort of make sense of why people make these choices and how they make their choices.
1: Sure. I think um, so. I spent a total of you know two years working um, uh, in for-profit colleges. One was a beauty college. The other was a technical college. And I argue in the book that this is a way to actually understand sort of the macro aspect through observing people, right? Mm-hmm. That I was still; those were two vastly different student populations. At the beauty college, it was overwhelmingly female, disproportionately African American. In the time that I was at the beauty college, I enrolled one man and maybe something like a couple of hundred women, mm-hmm. right? Um, so this was absolutely about a certain type of gendered. Uh, labor, gender low-income service labor, the people that we tend to think of as being for-profit college students. Right. But the other end of the spectrum were the stu- people who are increasingly becoming more likely to be a for-profit college student. Those are the people who are doing completing a degree, getting a master's or a graduate degree. And these days, everything between a PhD uh, um, uh, in psychology, clinical psychology, to a jurisdoctorate in law. And that population at the technical college looked quite different, right? I saw many more men, more white men uh, in particular, even though there were class differences, I was more likely to see working class men who were trying to move up the status uh, ladder um, into professional um, labor at the technical college. But those populations were very different, but they acted so similar. And that was my first sort of, well, how is that, Mm -hmm. right? As sociologists, especially, we don't think about white men um, of any class position having a whole lot in common with poor working class women, yeah. black women of color or women of color. Right. But they're they were remarkably similar in their understanding of mobility, their aspirations and the choices that they had available to them. And I thought, well, now that's interesting and that's different. How can I understand that? Well, to understand that, I thought about the people that I had met in those two places, and that sort of informed my question, right? And then I spent some time talking to students in for-profit colleges. Um, I enrolled in non-for-profit colleges um, Uh, in a large urban uh, metropolitan area in the U.S. South, uh, as we say these things, (laughs) Um, get an understanding of what those decisions look like day to day, right? So that means hanging outside of for-profit colleges, talking to students as they come and go. Um, I would point out to people that these days, you know, for-profit businesses, we don't have a right to be on their campus in the way we would a public or private not-for-profit. So I was always skirting the law just a little bit. And so, you know, I try to have to try to hang out and and affect looking like a prospective student. I talked to a lot of women, women, which is not uncommon, you know, they were more likely to speak to me. Um, But I tried really hard to find uh, men as well. Um, And the stories they told me were stories that were about, Time having become such a precious commodity and resource, in many ways, men were experiencing sort of that feminized relationship to time that has long been true of women working the second shift, right, of managing the family life in addition to the work life. What's happened is that for a lot of men, increasingly, they're experiencing some dimensions of that, right? Um, they maybe are taking on more childcare or family tasks. Um, and because of that, are having to make remarkably similar sort of educational choices as have always been the sort of constraints on women, which is how do I fit college around all of those other aspects of my life? Yeah. I, found, I found that students were really proud of themselves and how hard they were working. They resisted the idea that they go to a low status institution and their resistance of that idea really got in the way of them understanding things like debt and any sort of predatory behaviors as being predatory, right? right? In fact, many of the students, especially the women that I talked to, saw the debt as a sign of legitimacy and not as a problem for moral concern, right? Um, And this reimagines how we then have to think about things like organizing these students for those who work on such things or reaching out to them. You can't start with this, hey, you're being... Uh, you know, your prey in the system of uh, predatory higher education, which so much of our research and social science on for-profits have been about, characterizing these students as these sort of passive entities that are being abused. Well, that was the exact wrong way to start. They are proud of what they're doing. They are working hard. Um uh, and in many ways, they resent that their hard work is not transparent or can't be translated to gatekeepers. Mm-hmm.
0: And a lot, I mean, a lot of that, that language, at least as much as I'm familiar with it, also either explicitly or implicitly operates from the assumption that these students are stupid, right? That they are that's not right. capable of getting that's into it. a more legit institution. And, right. and what what is your experience about whether that's true or not?
1: Absolutely not true. And even if it were, which is the what I tried to argue in the book, even if it were that. And again, it is not true. (laughs) And if you ever really want to get me started, I have resisted that idea. And I get very angry about it because, again, the women, the people enrolled in for profit colleges are disproportionately people of color and women. Right. And so you're really compounding this historical narrative of the mental inferiority of African-Americans and women when you say that. Um, But even if I were to accept the premise of that argument, that explains people who have no experience with higher education who maybe attend something like the beauty college. It becomes a whole lot harder to say that of somebody who's doing a master's or doctorate degree uh, at Walden, who has a traditional bachelor's degree. That's why I spent so much time talking to women who were in exactly that position to sort of refute the idea um, that they are stupid. Uh, Have low cognitive functioning, as one article uh, uh, says about them. Granted, it's an econ article, and I know they're constrained by their language, but still, you know, this Mm -hmm. idea that prestige um, uh, reflects the cognitive ability of the students in the institution, Right. right? These were people who have traditional bachelor's degrees from institutions, traditional uh, not for profit institutions, many of them, the same institutions that produce people like you and I. They're clearly by our standards, not stupid. So then we have to have another way to understand their educational choices. And it came down to things like gender division of labor. Um, uh, racist and sexist um, uh, career opportunities and different career ladders in uh, mostly predominantly gendered occupational fields like healthcare and education. Um, and that, again, the, the time with which we are increasingly encourage people or require people to invest in staying labor market ready um, does not in any way offset the time they still have to uh invest in managing all of their other social responsibilities yeah. parents, spouse et cetera um and so they're not stupid yeah yeah
0: and a lot of i mean it it's i'm trying to find a polite way to say this i yeah. i' I have been present in a number of institutions that do a terrible job recognizing Uh, and meeting the needs of non-traditional students, right, of students who may be older, who maybe have family responsibilities, who may be caring for siblings or for parents or for Mm -hmm. other relatives who may have very complicated lives in addition to their own necessity to work. I mean, I've I've been in a lot of institutions that get very smug about about their expectations of students and do very little to understand how the university could better serve their needs. And it seems to me that some of these. These non-traditional institutions at least get that, and right. maybe maybe exploiting it in ugly, horrific kinds of ways, but do in <laughs> fact have a deeper understanding of those students as people. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely, and have done more to understand mm-hmm. their prospective student. Again, their motivations for doing so are absolutely about profit. Yeah. But this is what. Uh, but this is what I say to traditional institutions if we want to retain our moral high ground (laughs) on disparaging for-profit colleges, we're gonna have to compete for the students they serve. Um, And if we don't do that, then I really am not interested in sort of how we disparage for-profits. And in that way, I think I tend to be a bit odd because yes, absolutely. Um, We can can beat for-profit colleges on every dimension of serving their likely student. We have not done so.
0: Um, there's one other kind of student that that I think it might be worth talking about a little bit. And I've I've forgotten the the young man's name. He's a graduate of Morehouse College. You ran into uh, him yes, and a buddy yeah. of his. Uh, could you talk yes. a little bit about sort of, of the degree that he was getting and why he was getting it?
1: Oh, my God. Yes. His name is Mike. And um, truly just one of those wonderful moments that happens when you're doing field work. I, I truly stumbled upon him, overheard a conversation that he and his buddy were having at the mall. Right. They're shopping in the middle of a business day. Granted, I was, too, but still. Uh, And so that says a lot right They're out in the middle of the work day and they were shopping and they were young men and they had young black men. And they're having a conversation that my ears immediately pick up on in the parking deck because he's telling them, yo, man, nah, don't worry about it. Um, I got a girl who will give you all of the uh, all of the tests and the papers. You just got to do the enrollment and stuff. You just got to get enrolled. And I was like, what? (laughs) <laughs> what was it talking about? All right, so I'm here for this. And so I kind of start eavesdropping and uh we end up talking actually several times over uh a few months, and I'm actually still in touch with uh, one of the young men in that conversation. Um Mike is just quintessential Atlanta in which uh which in my parlance means he's quintessential black upward mobility, right? Okay. He has all of the um all of the trappings of sort of black social mobility in, in one person he was perfect he's he was youngish he's uh one i think it was uh at the time that we first started talking he was just turning 30. um he had attended an elite um historically black college morehouse that is known for coming as close as a black institution is ever allowed to do to being sort of a tradi- you know being comparable to a traditional predominantly white institution um he had uh, sort of overcome sort of some of the cultural limitations. He came from black working class parents, the type that would have been common to his generation, which was they worked in the public sector, so they had good, secure jobs, but ones that we would still probably maybe consider working class. Um, and so he had changed his uh, so you know his class position in many ways. Um, and so I say to him when we're talking, you know, so what is that about? After he tells me about his, you know, his dreams, he plans to start a tech company um, and has met all of these friends who are going to incubate. He uses words like incubate and uh, and pitch, you know, one of these young men. So he's fully embraced uh, what I call the entrepreneurial ethos of the new economy, which is that we all need to now be entrepreneurs, right? Yeah. Which is a cultural concession to the idea that the labor market will no longer provide for the health and well-being of its employees. Right, we are all supposed to act like we're always looking for our next job. Well, you know that's exhausting. But a young man like Mike had totally embraced this, um, in part because a place like Institution is aspirational and entrepreneurial, and they had encouraged him to embrace it. The problem is, in embracing the idea, didn't change any of Mike's um, uh, sort of status culture and the wealth and income uh, inequalities that had shaped his life chances that he wasn't always able to articulate. So, for example, um, what he was really going to school for was to access capital. Yeah. That was what the conversation was about the financial aid system. It's a young black man who wants to start his own business. How does a young black man get capital to start a business? Well, the literature can tell you he doesn't, he doesn't. right? because you mostly are supposed to get capital from your parents. Well, we know the history of racist wealth, um, inequality and extraction uh, for African-Americans in the US and that that is highly unlikely um, to happen. so, you know, 10 years prior, when we were in a different credit market, he might have used credit cards. Well, that market is also pretty much dried up. He may have tapped into his parents' home equity. Well, guess what? African-Americans live in communities where one of the first things that got hit in the housing crisis was uh, their home equity, their greatest asset. His parents were similar. They lived out in Lithonia. Which is how you say it in Atlanta, <laughs> uh, in Laconia, Georgia, and <laughs> where lots of middle class, working class African Americans live. And so they didn't have the ability to do that. What Mike was looking for was capital. Yeah. Well, the, what he knew, having come from an aspirational higher education background, was that, yeah, they'll always give you money if you're in school, as yeah. he told me. So you keep going to school to get access to some money. He was relying on the federal student loan system to give him a federal student loan refund. Right. Because if you're poor enough, then you can sometimes get a refund from your student loan, which is meaning they've grant, they've uh, lent you in, ex- in excess of your um, tuition balance. And he and his buddy were going to use that money for his business. Well, then that means they needed to make school as, a, as an efficient um, a technical process as possible. So, they had tapped into this underground um, sort of uh, uh, market of people who sold and shared the coursework for online classes and online degree programs, right? For profit colleges are particularly well suited for this for a couple of structural reasons. They use centralized uh, curriculum development, meaning the faculty don't design the courses, a centralized office does, and they ship it out to those faculty. Meaning even if the faculty changes or you take the course with someone else, the chances are high that the coursework, the test, the homework, all of that is the same. All the same. So this creates a market for that kind of work that makes it actually quite rational that these young men that I talked to that day would use the system in that way.
0: Um, and so, you know, it's, I mean, I can sort of, you know, hear in the back of my head, the people who would jump to sort of call, well, that's fraud. Mm-hmm. That's... Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. fine, call it fraud, right? But, I mean, you're talking about, again, mm-hmm. we're talking about smart, ambitious folks who live in very constrained circumstances taking advantage uh, of, of – who are trying to sort of live up to the aspirations of the culture that tells us who they should be, mm-hmm. who aren't simultaneously are given access to the tools to do that, sort of yep. – using this this really sort of smart, clever kind of way to get access to what a lot of people might think of as relatively small bits of money. I mean, he was right, right. talking about, what, five, $7,000 a year or something right. like that. That's right, yeah, that's
1: important. Um, I mean, yeah, we're not talking about, I mean, this is how wealth-deprived um, many people are in the U.S., but especially African-Americans. Five to $7,000, especially to get, as they kept saying to me, lump sum, meaning, you know, all at one time, right. was a huge financial boon. I mean, we are not talking about, you know, Mark Mark Zuckerberg money from the, you know, the Winkle people (laughs) wins, right? We're not talking that
0: kind of money, (laughs) Stephen.
1: We're talking about, you know, not enough to even really pay your rent in a place like Atlanta, you know? And um, so, yeah, we're talking about relatively small um, uh, pockets of money. And, you know, I get into the moral issue about extracting money using the student loan money for non-higher education related things. And I go, well, first of all, being economically secure is a higher education related expense, mm-hmm. right? Especially if your family, if you don't come from family resources, that's number one. Number two, I mean, you know, let's just back off of the, the, again, the moral high ground a little bit here. We all use our institutional access to do these kinds of things all the time. It's just that for many white people, especially middle class and upper class white people, the, the social institution that they um, extract from tends to be their family. And that's outside of the realm of sort of the legal and moral systems of legitimacy um, um, or deviance. Right. But it's the same activities. Um, And so, yeah, you know, it's only moral. Uh, There's a great quote from um, um, someone who I'm not whose name I'm now blanking on who says, you know, really what we're saying when people take on debt that we don't agree with is they didn't deserve the opportunity that they took the debt on
0: for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is Stephen Pamper. I'm the host of the Public Policy Channel here at the New Books Network, and we are talking with Tressie McMillan-Cottom about her new book, Lower Ed, The Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges in the New Economy. Um, so, so Tressie, you talked a little bit earlier about, about um, lessons that other institutions might learn from the behavior of these traditional for-profit colleges and the kinds of... Uh, political and social changes that would need to take place to uh, eliminate the opportunities that for-profit colleges have to exploit Mm -hmm. folks. I wonder if if you might take a a few minutes and just sort of uh, think out loud for our listeners about maybe putting some of those pieces together. What what should the policy agenda be for Mm -hmm. limiting the ability of these institutions to exploit people?
1: Absolutely. So, I um, actually, in many ways, thought about that way more than I thought I was going to think about when I first started this, you know, way back when. Uh-huh. Um, because I kept running into the same dead ends I'm sure social policy folks are very familiar with going, this seemed really easy when I started, right? And it just would <laughs> <laughs> get more and more complicated the more you would uh, disentangle something. Um, and what I fundamentally came away with was this belief the best higher education program is a jobs program. Uh-huh. Uh, We have sort of shunted higher education policy off to this sort of weird space between K through 12 policy and sort of workforce, this term workforce development. And really, it is a fundamental economic social policy um, issue. uh, And that's what debt, I think, is increasingly exacerbating. Um, And so we need to understand that, you know, college and higher education, which I believe, by the way, is absolutely about more um, um, than its job function. Yeah. Uh, I believe in that. Uh, I believe in it so much that I won't ask higher education to do what economic policy is supposed to do, right, which is to provide uh, social mobility and a quality of life for American workers. So I think the first thing I've been really encouraged by um, social movements that are organizing to improve job quality, Mm -hmm. because a lot of this is a result of the labor market shunting off the responsibility of employer security to uh, higher education. And higher education, for all of the sort of um, um, rhetoric out there about us being sort of the elites, we really don't have the power to push back against the labor market. We derive too much of our legitimacy from it. Um, So because of that, we keep taking on that responsibility for something we really can't do. Um, And so we need social movements. I say that higher education people who truly believe in education as being more than just a functional good and job training need to be very committed to social movements right now. They're going to save us. That's things like fight for 15. Mm-hmm. You know what, most of the, especially those um, women who were disproportionately in programs like those at the beauty college, what they really wanted was a good job. Yeah. They didn't want to go to school. Right. Well, that's about job quality, right? And so groups like Fight for 15, which is uh, overwhelmingly uh, led by African-American, Latina women who are out there fighting to improve the quality of service jobs that, that are you know, the majority now of um, our labor market, are hugely important to sort of um, alleviating demand for for-profit colleges. Then on the flip side of that, for the people who are going back to places like the technical um, school, um, Is how do we push back against the idea that the only way to navigate uh, jobs in the new economy that, again, we are all always need to be prepared to lose is not for us to continue to always send people back to college when inevitably the job lets them go. Right. The downsizing happens or the labor market shifts. There has to be a public option. Um, I tend to be a fan of um, a federal jobs program because I do believe in the social function of work and the social value of work and the fact that there's plenty of work that needs to be done in our society that the private sector is just not interested in providing because it's not necessarily profitable. That doesn't mean the work doesn't need to happen. And in fact, putting that kind of floor beneath the labor market is the biggest thing we could do to alleviate um, the demand and um, that uh, for profit colleges uh, take advantage of. Then, on the sort of institutional level, um, I think traditional not for profit higher education um, has to challenge head on. You know, some institutions do this. I think about things, uh, places like Southern New Hampshire University was one of the yeah. first to ever run an ad campaign that said explicitly, We are not a for profit college and let us tell you why that matters. Right. And I thought, yes, thank you. Say that. Right. We sort of have this, um, you know, left over from sort of our golden era of higher education, this sort of, uh, you know, cultural um, um, ideal that we don't talk about those things. Well, as the, uh, the potential, the higher education market, student market has diversified, we can't assume that students know those types of things. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to speak more explicitly about how the prestige hierarchy works, even if that means admitting that we're not all Harvard, yeah. right? It, it really is fine that we're not, and we need to kind of get over that, and mm-hmm. we need to say explicitly what we are. We need to make an affirmative case for not-for-profit higher education for students who do not come to us with that already inculcated in them from their parents and their social networks. Oh, you're
0: here. Um... So, as we work our way toward toward the end of the time here, Trussie, um So, what else are you working on? What else? What 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 are the yeah. what are the other kinds of questions swimming around in your head? And maybe <laughs> ideas for next projects.
1: So many, so many. No, so yeah, I'm I'm not the person who ever has a problem of not enough ideas. <laughs> I have the opposite problem, and I'm working on that. So, uh, no. So we've narrowed down to a couple of things. One, um, both really stemming out of this work, even though I think it's not always. Trans, you know, transparent how um, until I explain it to some people. So thanks for giving me a chance to do that because sure. uh, I think of these things as being all very much interrelated. So a lot of what was driving the, um, the labor market conditions that created the sort of perfect storm for for-profit colleges um, in the Wall Street era was that we've just got an issue of techn- how technology is changing how we work. Right. Um, and so I continue to be interested in how technology is shaping our social institutions precisely because it tends to produce the conditions for exploitative um, private market. Um, um, um operations and those and and that extraction always comes for people of color first mm-hmm. so for me looking at those things through a race class gender lens just makes sense right um in the same way that starting the conversation about for-profit colleges to, to think about black women made sense because again that's where sort of the um, uh, most of sort of the weaknesses in the intersecting institutions usually show up so right now I'm thinking about things like, How is technology shaping how people look for work? And so I'm looking at this sort of marginal moving from for-profit credentials, which were at least in the formal realm of credentialing, to thinking about things that are less formal. So things like boot camps, these coding boot camps, these sort of on-demand, short-term, I call it the wild, wild west of credentialing happening out there right now. Um, Again, fed mostly by a lot of private equity investment, just like the for profits, um, and also by uh, existing in sort of the shadow space of regulation and also relying upon, again, the fact that more people want opportunities than we can actually provide them. And so I'm following a group of workers around who have... um, who are participating in or have participated in boot, um, uh, coding boot camps and thinking about how those do and do not work. We actually know nothing about them. We're throwing all this money at them, and we know nothing about them really. Um, and so I'm doing that project. Uh, and the other project is sort of my big overarching project. Um, I've been told that this is a life project, and uh, <laughs> we'll see if I live long enough to do it. Uh, uh, I'm really interested in getting in. and uh, can't believe there's sort of not like a definitive book out there to explain how race, class and gender shapes technology um, as sort of a macro system. Right. So when these technological changes are shaping social institutions, um, in which ways are they also shaping our understanding of how race, class and gender work? Um, and so I am collecting um Uh, literature and ideas about that right now. I'm probably thinking about looking at that across the major social institutions, so work, education, uh, family, and religion, and uh, we'll see how that goes.
0: So, So, nice small set of questions.
1: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> nothing, nothing major that other people haven't you know uh, attempted and failed mightily
0: <laughs> um so that's great, so we'll look for a book on that in what two years' time how's that sound Is exactly that sound exactly
1: okay. two years twenty somewhere <laughs> <laughs>
0: um so finally before before we sign off Tressie, so so before uh before we started recording uh Today we we chatted a little bit about sort of the current political moment mm-hmm. that we inhabit um, and talked about sort of of spaces where we might be able to see hope and opportunity more broadly, um, but particularly for for the populations that you and I are both interested in for mm-hmm. for poor and low income people who may be particularly squeezed in a number of different ways. Um, I mean, is there anything sort of that you think might be productive to to talk about as it relates to your thinking or to your work about about where we might see spaces for for hope? Mm mm-hmm.
1: I'm gonna tell you, we are in an interesting moment. Right. So the day after the election, I called my my editor, who's going to love me for this. And I begged them because we were already in publication. Please, please let me add something about the election. And so we did. We did eke in a few pages there at the very end. And most of that was me trying to say, one, that is as despondent as I was, that I thought it made a case. It makes the case even more strongly for how important and valuable social movements and organizing are going to be. I take so much, um, you know, uh, I get so much um, by way of sort of emotional fortitude and hope um, from things like Black Lives Matter. Fight for fifteen and strike debt. These are uh, social movements with a lot of young people, yes, but not just young people who I think are attending to the exactly to the populations that got lost in this presidential election: um, working class people of all races. Um, and understanding that when we talk about class, we're also talking about race and gender, right? Um, the idea that unions are over—you know, absolutely not. There've been some significant union um, wins over the last few years. It's just they're not coming from play, people that we think of as being union people, right? They're coming from—they're coming from um, service workers, women, maids, um, fast food workers, uh, and I take a tremendous amount of um, um, uh, hope from them because uh, it shows that organizing does still matter, especially at the local and the state level, um, which is where I think this fight has to kind of happen at this point, especially if we're looking at a moment where we can fully expect uh, a ratcheting down a federal oversight of, of almost everything, uh, <laughs> judging by where we are right now. Um, something that people who disagree with me ideologically have known for at least 30 years is that the real fights are going to be at the local and the state level. Um, and these social movements have understood that. I have been dismayed by public discourse around Black Lives Matter, but emboldened by the fact that they have... Im- Race, academic research, and policy work, and have put out one of the most sophisticated policy platforms of any young people's Their social economic
0: movement. economic analysis, <laughs> analysis, I mean, oh, really deep, God. smart, my powerful God. stuff that nobody even knows exists. I
1: believe that nobody yeah. wasn't making a big deal. I mean, it yeah. was amazing, right? I'm yeah. so excited about that yeah. and want to support that as much as I can. I mean, oh my God, I signed that platform in all of my classes, and my students could go we didn't know that was a thing i mean you know (laughs) just really trying to put that before as many people as possible but i take a lot of hope from that and again i think we'll look up in 20 30 years and we will owe a lot to our professional selves higher education people faculty academics we will owe a lot of our professional selves to these movements absolutely
0: thank you for that
1: no problem. Thank We've you. We've
0: been speaking with Tressie McMillan-Cottom about her new book uh, from the New Press called Lower Ed, The Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges in the New Economy. Uh, Tressie, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Thank you, Stephen. Truly, for me too, really. Uh, I needed this moment, as you and I talked about a little earlier before we got started. Uh, it's been a, a, a great bright spot in
0: some difficult days.
1: <laughs> thank you so much.
0: You bet. Thank you. Take care. I'm not the only